0: it kind of changes up a bit. We ended up by saying that those things both change if society changes the meaning of good. We live in a society, and many people uh, behind us have lived in societies that have changed God's definition of good into something different and obeyed that instead, and that often results in persecution or affliction. Or even for all of us on some level, if we are Christians, we will believe that there is some sort of opposition. And when Peter says this, he experiences that and tells that to Christians who are going through serious opposition, serious persecution. And the point that he wants to push them to, at least in verse 14, before he even considers the suffering and before we consider the suffering, is he wants to point them to the greatest benefit and the starting place of a Christian worldview, And that is the idea that you are blessed. I think the best way that we can start understanding this process of developing worldview is to start with this meaning of blessed. And so if we're going to understand the meaning of blessed, there's at least two things that it means. I'm going to lean a little bit, so don't make fun. The first meaning of the word blessed is just happy. It's very simple. It means to be happy or to be fortunate. And the Bible uses that term very constantly to explain happiness. In Luke chapter 1, verse 45, at the very beginning of the Bible, there's a meeting between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her cousin, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is pregnant with Jesus. And when they meet together, and they both understand the kind of revelation they've both been given, the angels that have visited both of them, for Elizabeth, her husband, Zacharias, and then for Mary herself, They both have a kind of excitement. And in an exclamation of that excitement, Elizabeth says to her her cousin, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What she's saying is the reason I'm happy is not just because I'm seeing you, because I'm seeing someone who heard the word of the Lord and believed it. And the point that they're trying to make there and the point that's so helpful for us is The foundation of a Christian is that you are supposed to be happy. The news of the good news is good news. And the whole point of everything that the Bible is pointing towards is a general consideration of your contentment and your comfort. And when people are blessed in the Bible, there are people who recognize that and they have good reasons to recognize that. I want to make sure I got the right verse here. I do. Matthew chapter 13, verse 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he explains to his disciples that there are many people who will not have a Christian worldview. He explains them as people who have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. But when he turns to his disciples, he instead says, but blessed are you for your eyes do see and your ears do hear. And Christ is making a very similar point as Elizabeth is, which is that It is a very good and happy and joyful thing that you believe the Bible. That's one of the greatest things that I hope that we can explain to you, at least in this ministry, is that it is a good and enjoyable thing to be a Christian. And both of those meanings of blessed actually get to the other meaning of blessed, which is that being blessed just doesn't mean you're happy in an emotional sense. It means you have a certain understanding, which the consequence of, is happiness. There's a message that is good that results in joy. The understanding of that is that blessing means privileged favor. It means you are the recipient of privilege. It is the kind of joy that you would have in knowing someone who is powerful and good. And in a general sense, it means being happy that you are approved and solidified and good with God, and this is the term that usually shows up in most of the Bible. In Luke chapter eleven, verses twenty-seven and twenty-eight, there's a very interesting short exchange between Jesus and a crowd. As he's teaching, there's a woman in the crowd, and she yells out, "Blessed are you whose uh, Let me actually uh, let me quote it directly. Blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the breasts at which you nursed." Basically, while he's teaching, a woman yells out in the crowd, it must have been awesome to be your mom because she had a child who never ever sinned. Now, if you talk to any of the many parents that are here at this church, you would tell them that wouldn't one of the greatest things you could ever experience having a kid who never did anything wrong. Maybe your parents ask your parents, wouldn't it be great if I never did anything wrong? And they probably say that's one of the best things I could ever think of. But when that woman yells that out to Christ, he responds to her. And what he says is, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What he says is, it would have been nice to be a mom or a dad who had a child who never sinned. But what's even better than that is having the ability to believe in the truth and to do the truth. What he's saying is, Even the belief in something like a Christian worldview isn't like shopping through the worldview shop and starting to pull things off and consider them and and then walk by and just determine which one you want to pick. What he's saying is it's like the grocery store clerk coming and saying, this is the best product in our store, here it is. And determining a Christian worldview is so similar in the fact that this is God giving you a worldview. If you believe it and if you have the ability to keep it, That means you've been the privileged recipient of the goodness of God. Another very interesting exchange happens along these same lines. At the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 29, after Jesus dies and rises again, he presents himself to the disciples. And while many of the disciples are excited, one disciple, Thomas, is not excited because he doesn't, in fact, know or believe yet that this is Jesus Christ he's skeptical. And so what Jesus does is he comes to them and he offers up his hands and he shows Thomas the scars on his hands, proving in fact that he was crucified and he did rise again. And Thomas, absolutely awestruck at this, looks at him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responds to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. I think every one of us would probably say that the easiest evidence that we would want to believe that Christianity is true is if Jesus Christ showed up in the middle of our ministry and just showed himself like that and showed the scars on his hands. But the reality is that even Jesus has said, there are many people, in fact, most people who will be my followers, who until they die or I come again, they will never, ever meet me. And he says, those people are privileged because they actually have everything that they need to believe me, even though they've never met me. And that point that Jesus makes is the exact same point that Peter makes in his letter that we're going through right now. In first Peter chapter one, verse eight and nine, Peter tells the Roman Christians, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The point that Peter is making is very simple. Having a Christian worldview, all the evidence that you need is in the Bible. And it is so much overwhelming evidence that if you believe it, you can't help but being happy about it because you know that God has given you the ability to understand it. Now, why is it so important that Peter is mentioning that you as your default position should be someone who cries out to God, thank you Lord, because you have blessed me. Why is Peter finding it important to mention that? And the reason is because there are many things that happen in life that get in the way of that or start to make you doubt that that might be true. And suffering kind of sums that up. Suffering is that thing that tends to get in the way of you actually believing whether the things you hold on to tightly are true or not. In the great spiritual war that every single one of us is facing, suffering is one of the chief tools that the world and the devil use against us to try and explain or take us away from a Christian worldview. So understanding suffering is very, very important. And as Christians, we even need to know the defaults of why suffering even exists. That is probably a good place to start. The existence of Genesis 3, or the existence of suffering rather, is explained in Genesis chapter 3 that man and woman understood the good and perfect design for God's kingdom that he provided for all people. And they decided that they wanted to choose what was good instead of accepting what God was good. And of course, they immediately found out that, of course, God's good was good. And now they are liable to eternal judgment for denying God the right to be God. And every single one of us, every time we sin, partake in the exact same thought process. So as a result, we know why sin exists, but we also on some fundamental level need to know not only why sin exists, which is what suffering comes from, from the world being fallen, covered in sin, and from people being covered in sin, but specifically that second point, we really need to understand why is it, like we learned last week, that people can have this understanding of good, but they might still persecute us. Why is it that the world so often shows opposition to a Christian worldview that somewhere in their heart they know is good? When Christ explains that. It's actually a very important point for him and one of the last points he makes to his disciples. In John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19, one of the last things Christ says to his disciples is this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I think you guys have probably gotten used now to the fact that I use war analogies pretty often, but the truth is that it's a massively important part of world history, and it explained and defined a lot of things that we do now. Now, after the two wars happened, there was about a 50-year period in the world's history that was called the Cold War. It was called the Cold War because lots of people didn't actively fight each other, but enemies were, different countries were enemies with each other all over the world. And in that 50 years, the biggest thing that every single country was worried about were spies. Spies seemed to be everywhere one country would send one of their agents to another country and they would pretend to be a citizen of that country. But really, they were observing everything around them, especially in the government, getting information and then giving it back to their real country. And because of that, of course, the government needed to take steps to try and find these spies in their country. But what it did was every single person in every country became paranoid and fearful, they thought their neighbors were spies. They thought their parents were spies. Everybody was worried that someone they were talking to was in fact a traitor and not really from their country. That kind of paranoia and that kind of fear is a certain kind of suspicion that unbelievers will often have towards Christians at some point. When Paul was a prisoner in Rome himself, he said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 as an encouragement, that we are not citizens of this world, that we are citizens of heaven. At a certain point in your life, you are going to meet someone who is going to be suffering from a kind of paranoia that only comes when they start to realize that you are not a citizen of this world. If you are a Christian, they will recognize that their understanding of good and your understanding of good has a difference somewhere, and they will see you as a traitor. They will see you as someone who is not of this country and from that country, and they will find themselves pitting themselves against you. And that is what sin tends to do. It holds people as slaves to this country, this not good country, and it blinds them and tries to coerce them constantly with evil desires to keep them in this country when they could become citizens of a much better country. Those are the people we're not only trying to reach, but Those are the people we have to understand have a hostility against us. We are called to them, but God still warns us of them. Now, of course, that just explains the existence of opposition. But we also have an understanding, I hope, that our God is a sovereign God. Our God controls everything. Though he does say that this world is under the authority of Satan, that doesn't mean God doesn't have authority. He has an allowance for that. And he still has a good plan for everything. Romans chapter eight, verse 28 says, all things work towards good for those who love him. So if that's the case, we can't just know the existence of suffering. We have to understand if there's a purpose in suffering. Because if suffering has no purpose, then God is no longer God because he's not sovereign. And we should be very discouraged in suffering. Because every suffering would totally deny the fact that we are blessed. No, we need to know as Christians that even though we suffer, we are still blessed. I think one way that might be helpful to understand suffering is to break it down in maybe two categories. i want to break down suffering into what we assume about suffering, and what we know is true about suffering. Because the reality is that many of the biggest questions that come at people from the world and even come from us is actually not because we understand suffering, but we think we understand suffering. We assume it is true. And if we start to correct some of those assumptions, we can start to have a better understanding of where suffering works in a Christian worldview. Let me throw an assumption in your direction. suffering is always wrong. Now, I think we would understand to a degree that punishment isn't always wrong. We know that certain people do certain things and they deserve to be punished, but suffering in itself on some degree to everyone feels wrong. And therefore, if, we ha- if it happens, we think something is broken and something isn't working. And if that's the case, if we believe God is sovereign and we believe suffering is always wrong, then that starts to contradict our view of the kind of good that God should be. If you believe suffering is always wrong, that usually results in questions like, if a good God exists, why is there suffering in the world? That question comes from an assumption that any suffering that happens ever is wrong. That often leads to another assumption that people often have as well. assumption is that people are undeserving of suffering. I think to a degree, just like we thought when suffering is always wrong, that we would say lots of people might quote-unquote deserve to suffer. Maybe we don't think that people deserve the death penalty if they do a certain crime, but we would probably admit that they need to serve some significant jail time. But that starts to be more complicated when you start thinking through something like this. Imagine you knew an adult and you knew them in the hospital while they were suffering from a terminal illness. And the more you started to get to know them, the more good you realized they were. And I'm talking about someone who's not a Christian. Someone who, from the day they graduated high school, moved to another country and started planting orphanages. They started helping people whenever they could. They helped the little old lady cross the street and they helped the old man across the block get his groceries from the store. This person's whole life seemed to be defined by good acts. And even though they're not a Christian, it seems like God should do something good for them. But instead, they get a terminal illness, and suddenly they're sitting in a hospital bed talking to you, waiting for them to die six six months to one year. That person, we would not assume, deserves suffering. How do we explain something like that in a Christian worldview? The fact is that something like that assumes something else about the world. And it assumes that every single person that we talk to is born neutral on the scales of justice. When they are born, they've never done anything good and they've never done anything bad. And all of their good works work towards one side of the scale and the heavier and heavier that side of the scale gets, the more good that God should do to that person. But the fact is that works very similar to many other worldviews. That's something akin to like karma. And so if that's the case, we need to start breaking down with the Bible, whether these assumptions are in fact true. The fact is that we as Christians cannot believe that people are undeserving of suffering. Romans chapter three makes it expressly clear that every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. We know from Genesis chapter three that every single person has decided at some point in their life that it is acceptable for them to be God and for God not to be God. And if that is the case, we need to be honest to people when we explain to them the severity of eternal judgment. Let me put a picture before you, and I want to see how you think about this. And it might start help getting into the truth aspect of suffering and away from some of our assumptions. This week, I was listening to a panel of Bible teachers, Bible teachers I respect, and they were answering questions at a conference to try and help these people have a better understanding of Christianity. And one of the questions that was read to them was a gentleman with this question. He said, I am trying to reconcile the death of my adult son, whom I believe not to be saved with my Christian faith. How do I deal with my anger toward God in this long dark night of the soul? The question he was asking is very similar to our assumptions of suffering. If God is good, why does suffering exist? He's asking, if God is a good God, why did he allow my adult son to die before what I would say his time? Listen to the response of the man, and I want you to tell me if that seems harsh. The Bible teacher responded with this when he asked, what should I do when I'm angry at God? Repent, and repent in dust and ashes. Crawl over glass in your repentance if you're angry at God. There's never been anything that's happened to you in your whole life, including this great tragedy, the most painful experience that could ever possibly justify being angry at God. I don't want to say that lightly, but take a second to think to yourself whether that response sounds harsh or not, because that is a real scenario that most of us will come to in some way or form. Ask yourself in your worldview, does it make sense that people would be angry at God? Have you ever been angry at God? Have you ever found yourselves crying on your knees, trying to explain why the world can be so rotten so often? And bad things can happen so much, and yet God somehow needs to still be good. While you have that idea in your head, a yes or a no, let me read to you the rest of the response from this Bible teacher. He said, there are 10 million reasons why God should be angry at you. God does not owe us a life without pain and tragedy he's given us a life of grace and eternally immeasurable happiness. And any being who does that for us, 100% graciously, which means undeserved, can never righteously be the object of our anger, only our gratitude. These emotions that are coming from your pain will destroy you and it has greater consequences than even the loss of the one that you loved so well. Understand that God does all things well, and when we accuse him of wrong and we are mad at him for it, then we don't understand who he is or who we are. Suffering exists and suffering originated because we wanted it that way we wanted a world in which we could determine to be God and we were okay with the consequences. It might feel wrong to assume somewhere in our mind that suffering should happen to people. But the reality is that it exists and has proven its existence to us every single time we determine we want to define what is good instead of what God says is good. The question we then need to ask is not How do we end up with suffering in the world? And how can we reconcile a good God with suffering? Which is actually a better question to ask. The better question we really need to ask is, how do we get any happiness at all? If we hate God and reject God every single day, why have we the lives that we have? Why do we receive any joy and any grace and any goodness? And it's because God has demonstrated his grace to us even when we were sinners. Every single second that we are living in this world not being punished by God is a grace towards us and a grace to many millions of people who are still in full rejection of him. But at the same time, we also need to understand correctly that just because we've become Christians, that doesn't mean we stop suffering either. Just like the Romans in Paul's day, we still suffer now, which means God must have a purpose for suffering. And as you go in the Bible, God is very gracious to explain to us beautifully and graciously and kindly that suffering does make sense in his world. Matthew 16, verse 21, Christ explains to his disciples that he is going to suffer and die and then rise again for the salvation of them and many, many people. He does not say that he wants to suffer, and he does not say that he might suffer. He is saying he has to suffer because he needs to suffer. The reality is that suffering doesn't just exist, suffering is a necessity. Even Christ, who puts the Christ in Christianity, did not assume that suffering was not for him. Part of the experience of being a human being was suffering. And in him taking on suffering, he proved that suffering was important and valid, not only for him, but for all of his followers to understand the importance of it does something to us, and it does something to shape our worldview. Hebrews has a lot to explain about the process of Christ and what he had to do, but Christ, or uh, Christ, rather, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 explains that Christ learned obedience through suffering. The fact that he was trying to explain, which is important for every one of his followers to explain, is that suffering is a teacher. It is very, very easy to retain and believe a Christian worldview when you've never gone through pain. When no one has ever tried to fight you on it. When no one has ever threatened to kill you because you believe it. But the fact is, when you have opposition and when you have suffering, you need to go back to the core of yourself and ask you the question, why do I believe this? Why am I holding on to this worldview? Why don't I give it up and adopt something that makes sense of this in a way that I understand more? And the reality is that the next time you suffer, after you've adopted some other worldview, that worldview will come crushing down. And you'll adopt some other worldview and it'll come crashing down. But suffering in the life of the believer does not make your worldview crash down. It forces you to reconsider why you believe what you do. And as you read the Bible and talk to many other believers who have suffered just like you have, you start to realize that that forced you to reconsider how true the gospel is. Suffering teaches you to stand up for what you believe in. Suffering forces you to go back to some of these basics that it is not the punishment of God against you. At the very least, it might be the discipline of God against you. But in fact, it is his ability to refine you in fire, that he has provided a means by which you can go back to the core of yourself and determine, do I believe this? And as you investigate, come out with the conclusion, yes, I very much do believe this. That is at least one of the reasons why suffering is not only a reality, but it is a necessity. The verse that I love that talks about this is Hebrews chapter 8 verse 18. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says that because Christ himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I don't know if you've ever met someone at school who's gone through something particularly traumatic, but it's very, very hard to talk to them about it. If you've ever talked to someone at school who did bad at a math test, it's usually pretty easy to say, hey man, I've been there. I've also done bad at a math test and it sucks. But it's a lot harder to talk to someone when they tell you, you know, my dad went out for cigarettes yesterday and he just did not come back. The reality is that what we really want to do in that moment is go and talk to somebody else and say, Hey, I know you've gone through this. Could you talk to him about this? Because it's easier to connect with people who you've had similar experiences with. And when people have gone through tragedy, you want to find someone who's gone through tragedy and put them at them because they'll understand they know where that's they've been in that situation. The reality is that Christ has suffered more than any human being has ever suffered in this whole world. When we he went through that suffering, especially the suffering that he took on the cross, the full punishment of all of our sins on him from the Father for your benefit, what he did in that moment was giving you the reason that you can trust him more than anyone else in this world. When you go through pain, he understands your pain. When you go through tragedy, he fully understands it. In that kind of sense, you don't only understand that you can empathize and lead other people to empathize with Christ. But you understand that Christ empathizes with you. That Christ went through everything, every sort of imaginable pain and punishment from the Father. And he did that while we were still sinners. He took that kind of suffering and he took that kind of pain as a reminder to his people, I understand you and I understand your experience completely. And in that sense, Peter is trying to pull out those kinds of truths and give them to a people experiencing pain and saying, Christ fully understands this. And it is completely explainable. And it does not disregard or disprove the fact that you are still blessed by God. And Peter starts incorporating that idea into his message First Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, Peter says this, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You know, I'm just thinking, even right now, this isn't in my notes, it's amazing that all of the philosophers in Greek culture knew that it was important to teach what they thought was true to their disciples. And the best way that they could do that was just make their disciples walk with them through everyday life and through all of their experiences. And the whole point was they were trying to make little them. Aristotle was trying to make little Aristotles, and Plato was trying to make little Plato's. And in a Christian worldview, the best way that you could ever understand Christ is to learn to be like Christ. Suffering gives you an opportunity to be like Christ. Suffering gives you an opportunity to experience what it is like to be a good person and suffer undeservingly for it. And why is that? Well, consider how important that would be to proving a Christian worldview correct. When people around you see you suffer, as Peter says, not for ridiculous things, not for deserving things, not for you going to jail and say you're uh, suffering, even though you went to trial and were proven guilty of stealing a car. That's not the kind of suffering he's talking about. But when you have been a good person and you suffer for it, And regardless of that experience, you pledge your full commitment to the father, just like Christ demonstrated his full commitment to the father. That is powerful evidence that the Christian worldview is true. When people suffer and they stay loyal to Christ, that is an amazing testimony to people who have never had that kind of comfort in any suffering they've ever gone through. And when they have it, it's not just their words that are helpful to explain the Christian worldview, but it is their life that demonstrates the Christian worldview. And that's not a thing we're forced into do. The point that Peter wants to make is that's something we are very joyful to do. First Peter chapter 4, 13 to 16, which is very close to the end of Peter explaining his book, his letter to the people in Rome. And he says this, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, If any of you does suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Suffering is awful. And we know that suffering is wrong. But because we know suffering has a place, because we know that suffering is a teacher, because we know that suffering does something good for us and not just bad things against us, and suffering has never given us an excuse to leave Christ, and because suffering actually brings you closer to Christ, we should be joyful when it happens. We're not masochistic and we do not crave pain. We do not look for experiences that hurt us, but when they come and we know that we've not walked into them, but they have simply come from the ordination of God, God has given us an opportunity to be like Christ. That is a very good thing. And the reality is that part of the reason it is a good thing is because that suffering is temporary. The Christian worldview is the only Christian worldview that gives you that essential thing that you need to not only believe this worldview, but to do anything in life at all, which is hope. James chapter one, verse 12 explains that trial. Is understandable and makes sense and is totally possible for a Christian to get through because it's temporary. Any trial that you are going through or any trial that you know someone is going through will end. In many, many cases, it will sometimes end in death, whether yours or people you know. But the reality is that we are walking away from this temporary world full of sin and walking into a world without sin with a Christ who loves us and has prepared an eternal place for us and the bible gives us every single hope in the world that that is a legitimate reality to hope in that is something that we can totally find comfort in James 1:12 reads this way Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test of time he will receive the crown of life which God has promised Those who love him. God has given you the strength to get through any means of suffering in this world. And that suffering is actually going to shape your ability to receive and believe in the Christian worldview. It is supposed to help you mold it like Plato into something that resembles Christ more and more. And no matter what happens in it, it is temporary. The way I like to think about it is that suffering makes you homesick. It starts to remind you every time something wrong happens that this world is not the place for you. You have been designed after God and our place is to want to be with him and not in this world. But while we were here, no matter what happens, we are under the sovereign hand of God and he has given us every reason to try and help other people walk out of that kingdom of sin and into the kingdom of the son. And the important thing actually is that hope isn't just good for us. That hope is actually the first line of defense in explaining how good it is to be a Christian to other people. Hope is that necessary ingredient to make a defense for Christ. But that is what we'll learn next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that we don't know about you. And there's so much suffering in this world that we hold on to and we allow it to give us doubts and give us heartache. And Lord, every time suffering happens, we know that it's wrong. We know it's against your design. But so often we can't help but feeling frustrated. And sometimes we can't help but feeling angry at you because we feel like you've caused it. We feel like you've put it in our lives because you don't love us, but Lord, you're, word reveals so, so often that your love for us is deep. It is so deep that you sent your son to create a way that we would leave this world of suffering and into your home. And you even created our lives in such a way that suffering didn't happen away from your gaze. It didn't happen accidentally. You designed it that every time we suffer, it might be for a purpose, a purpose to glorify you and to help other people understand that they can overcome suffering as well but not without you it must be with you for lord help us so much give us courage give us energy give us excitement to want to be with you want to be with your people want to know you more so that we can prepare for those times when suffering comes we know it is inevitable and we are fearful over it and we are troubled about it but You've provided us ways to get through it every single time. When we come out on the other side, you have promised that we would trust you more, not less. So Lord, help us do that and let us solidify these verses and these concepts in our brain that we would be able to understand the process that you have allowed us to be in so that we could know you more and not less. We love you, Lord, and we thank you when we pray. All of this would be for your glory in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for your attention. It's really encouraging for me just kind of looking out and seeing all of your heads, either looking directly at me or at your notes. So I appreciate that a lot. I thank you. Uh, Someone was commenting to me not long ago that they were looking at one of my old sermons and they thought that I hated them. So if I didn't smile very much, I'm sorry. I'm still working on that. Uh, You can always tell me if you were scared of me because I don't want you to be scared. Um, But with that, we're finished part two. And you guys can meet in your various uh, small groups. I think uh, Jennifer is gone. So McKenna is taking the high school girls. She's over here with the hand, as you can see. Um, You guys can use my office if you want, or you can go wherever. Um, So you guys be there. High school boys, junior high girls, or junior high girls, junior high boys, break.